Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I wonder how many of those 650,000 Pennsylvanians who already sent in their absentee ballots would like to reconsider the choice they made in the Senate race in Pennsylvania between Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and celeb doctor, Dr. Oz. 312, yeah, 312-642-5600. You can always reach us, too, on our text line at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Yesterday was uh, the first debate between Fetterman and Oz, finally, as uh, most people who listen to this show and who are thus following what's going on in politics in this country. Uh, John Fetterman had a stroke earlier this year. He's been recovering from the tro- uh, that stroke. He has been uh, reticent to debate. They finally got the deal set with the addition of close captioning to the questions that were posed to mm. Fetterman so he could follow along. And this is not to ridicule him. This no. is just to set the stage of the reality of the choice in this race. And you could see they showed the audience, too, and us, you know, this is these, this is where the question is appearing, and this is where he's, list, or, you know, when Dr. Oz responded, his response was printed on another jumbotron in front of him. And so it's a legitimate question about somebody's capacity to do the job, and obviously somebody's health has an impact on their capacity if they're not in good health. We've had this conversation before as we've talked about this race in Illinois, about Mark Kirk when he ran for re-election after having a stroke, about John Stroger when the details were not forthcoming from the Stroger camp when he had a a stroke and right before uh, his uh, primary campaign, which is essentially the re-election campaign in 2006 for Cook County Board President where he defeated Forrest Claypool and then his son replaced him in the general election and beat Tony Pareka, if you remember that race. Mm -hmm. So we've had these conversations before. They're legitimate conversations because uh, the the ability to hold office in terms of uh, your how healthy you are is a legitimate issue, just as it was discussed during the last presidential race and continues to be with Joe Biden. And his opening statement, I mean, I... I, Well, so here's how it started. Here's how it started, just to to give you a sense of where he's at. This is his opening statement. Hi. Good night, everybody. Well, um, okay. It's, but it, there's a little more to it, though. Yeah. Just a I, tad bit more. I mean, I felt. This, hello. Good night, everybody. I know. And then he stumbled through more. It was, Hi. Good night, everybody. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. Well, He's running to use Pennsylvania. I just, I, I felt so bad. Hello. Good night, everybody. It was so bad. I, I felt like I was watching elder abuse. Well, honestly, there's no there's no abuse here. I know. He I know. He's chosen to to run for Senate. He's chosen to continue to run for Senate. The his campaign, along with him, chose to participate in this debate. And 
there were just awkward moments. And by the way, the head, this is not just, oh, conservatives taking a chance to seize on John Fetterman. Read the headlines in Politico, in Axios, um, in most of the outlets Everywhere. about the painful quality of this debate. Olivia Nuzzi from New York, The New Yorker, uh, the painful performance, awkward moments, like, for example, when he was asked about his ever-changing position on fracking. I don't support fracking at all. I never have. But earlier this month, you told an interviewer, quote, I support fracking. I support the energy independence that we should have here in the United States. So, Mr. Fetterman, please explain your changing position. 60 seconds. I do support fracking. And I don't, I don't, I support fracking. And I stand and I do support fracking. Uh, okay. And it was hard because then Dr. Oz was saying, no, he, he, he said more than in 20,008, he signed petitions against fracking. And, you know, he, but he's trying not to look like a bully either. It was a, it was a far, fine line for him to walk on, I thought, last night. Yeah, it was. But, Fetterman. I mean, you, 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 the, you, the flip-flop is uh, almost as painful as his debate performance. Uh, he was opposed to it, opposed to it, opposed to it. Now he's in a competitive race and prices are through the roof. And so now I support fracking because I support fracking. Uh, as I said, I support fracking. That's not exactly a persuasive explanation of a 180 on that issue. Basically, if he got into office, somebody else would be running the show and he would just be the face man, obviously. But this is why I can't stand early voting. Because you're right, Dan, 48% of those who registered to vote early have voted and after watching that, don't you think they want their vote back? Uh, some may, some may not, some don't care. But um, the race has changed considerably as uh, this has become more obvious that that arguably, and I think it's pretty convincing, Fetterman is not up for the job. I mean, even if he was at 100% healthy, he wouldn't be up for the job because he's a bonehead. Um, so separate, setting aside his health. But, but in terms of the actual electoral reality on the ground in Pennsylvania— you know, it's moved from an eight-point race to, in some surveys I've seen, Oz with a slight lead, well within the margin of error, but a slight lead nonetheless. And I think it's largely because of, well, what you saw and heard from John Fetterman last night. And it, Because i, I got to say, you know, Dr. Oz wouldn't have been my choice in the primary, even though he was Trump's, and he just reeks of a future Arlen Specter. But when you're talking about uh, control of the Senate on the line, I'll take Dr. Oz over John Fetterman every day and twice on Sunday. I think Oz is, like so many Republican candidates uh, for statewide offices as well as congressional offices, I think uh, momentum is with Dr. Oz here as we go into the final 13 days. And you know what I could not stop thinking about watching this yesterday was Katie Hobbs, how dare she not debate Carrie Lake in the Arizona governor's race because she's of sound body, mind, and soul. So why wouldn't she get up there? I mean, at least he had the, I mean, I know he was forced into it, but at least he got up there. And I give him credit for that. And, I, you know, can I play something from Dr. Oz? I just want, want to ask you, because you're a political juggernaut, whether or not this is too harsh. When John Fetterman brings up houses, the irony is he didn't pay for his own house. He got it for a dollar from his sister. And he hasn't been able to earn a living on his own. He's lived off his parents. So it, it doesn't, it's not a topic that we should be debating on the stage. We should be talking about crime and inflation, the issues that are hurting Pennsylvanians that they're talking about at their kitchen table. Uh, it, it, uh, that's a, he, uh, he got his... 
Pennsylvania right, House Fetterman, from his own inlays from a, a dollar. Mr. That's Fetterman, typical. we have to continue on. What? I know. Uh, I think I don't he meant to say in-law. It was bad. It's... Um, well, yeah, here's the problem Fetterman has. What Dr. Oz said about him is true. He didn't have a job until, I don't know. He was, he was lieutenant governor. Too. I mean, but 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 being mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, <laughs> isn't a real. It may, he makes like five grand. Right. So it's a stipend, which is fine. That's how most positions should be. But the point is, he Oz is right, and the problem with Fetterman is he's not right because whatever you think of Doctor Oz, and again, I don't have a particularly high opinion of him. No, you but he's made ten, tens of millions of dollars, uh, both in the medical profession and probably even more so on TV. So he hits him for having 10 houses, and then Fetterman comes back and tries, says, well, you also didn't buy one of your 10 houses? Well, what your in-laws that? gave you? I mean, Oz was right to spin out of it, but okay. Fetterman, Fetterman is a cartoon character. And this, again, has nothing to do with his health. He was a cartoon character before. He has, he's sort of like Tim Ryan in Ohio, another race we'll get to, running against J.D. Vance. He has this, like— you know, Scranton Joe, rough and tumble perception. If in Federman's case, he's a big guy. He's not you know, he's, dress up. He's gonna wear hoodies. Be like the working man. Yeah, he's got the the you know creative facial hair. You know, he looks like a character from the Adams family and all this stuff. But but you know what? He he's a he is a shrill, ignorant leftist hack that's who john fetterman actually is his physical appearance belies his politi- his politics and so no it's not off limits you you want to open uh this because fetterman started with it he has 10 houses he can't relate to the working man and woman you can't relate to the working man or woman either because you never worked <laughs> how about that i think that's good dan i like it mark on the south side good morning dan and amy dan i echo your sentiment with us he isn't the greatest candidate and i don't have a great feeling about him but with that being said what's it say about the mentality of the people in pennsylvania that this race is even competitive well yeah thanks for the call mark um although you know being illinois residents we don't really have the moral standing to castigate people about the mentality of our fellow denizens do we david in winnetka hey good morning guys that's uh that uh, Fetterman's opening uh, line there reminded me of a 60 Minutes episode where I think it was Morley Safer and a couple of camera crew got to uh, Fidel Castro Grandin, um, you know, an interview. So they're out there in the middle of the field. They're waiting. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. This and that. And all of a sudden, these giant floodlights pop on. They're surrounded by like 50 gorillas and masks and guns. And they get led in this room and they're tied up and they're sitting there on their knees wondering if they're going to live or die. And Castro comes walking in. He goes, I am Fidel Castro. Good night. thanks guys you have a great day thanks david listen to dan and amy on your smartphone download the am560 mobile app today at 560 com slash mobile Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. See Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The uh, New York governor's race, in a lot of ways, mirrors the Illinois governor's race. And yesterday, Lee Zeldin, the congressman from Long Island, who's the Republican nominee, challenging the incumbent Kathy Hochul, who took over after Nipple Rings Gambino was run out of the office. Their first debate and the focus, the focus of Lee Zeldin's campaign in terms of trying to crystallize the choice for New Yorkers, violence. Yeah, of course. Unfortunately, Kathy Hochul believes that the only crimes that are being committed are these crimes with guns. And you, you have people who are afraid of being pushed in front of oncoming subway cars. They're being stabbed, beaten to death on the street with hammers. Go talk to the Asian American community and how it's impact them with the loss of lives. Jewish people targeted with raw, violent anti-Semitism on our streets. It just happened yet again. We need to be talking about all of these other crimes, but instead, Kathy Hochul's too busy patting herself on the back. Job well done. No, actually, right now, there should be a special session. The state legislature should come back and they should overhaul Castle's bail and these other pro-criminal laws with zero tolerance. But they're saying, elect me. She says, elect me, and then you'll find out where maybe I'll stand on this issue in January. Will you pick up on the similarities? 312-642-5600, turnkey dot pro answer line. Text us at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Don't believe your lying eyes. Everything's fine. We've done a great job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the gun's fault. She did watch said that yesterday, too. It's not crime so much as it's the gun. Of course, the gun banners yeah. doing what they do. And then New York has this cashless bail law oh, as yeah. well. That's been a scourge on the state. And Lee Zeldin wants to make a change. Obviously, you've heard it just call for a special session of the New York state legislature. And in Illinois, we have the same thing, except we've got half the state's attorneys, county state attorneys of the state suing the state to enjoin the implementation of the Pritzker Purge Law. And uh, in New York, Kathy Hochul doesn't want to change the no-cash bail law that they have, doesn't want to talk about uh, dethroning Alvin Bragg, the non-prosecution prosecutor in Manhattan, any more than Pritzker wants to talk about Kim Fox. See the similarities? Hmm. And speaking of violence on the subway, there was another such incident. Here? Oh, in New, New, York, New York. New York subway. Yeah. Cause we uh, Ronald Baptiste, was 62-year-old grandfather, was apparently the victim of somebody playing the knockout game. What's the knockout game? That's where you just randomly go up and you punch somebody to try and knock them out, or in this case on the subway, you just barrel into them and knock them on the tracks, which is what happened to Ronald Baptiste. Fortunately, and it and uh, somebody in New York a couple weeks ago was killed by the train when an, another person did that to him. Fortunately for Ronald Baptiste, there was no train coming, so he survived. Uh, 
And he had this to say to local reporter. Safety is the greatest concern in, in the system. Mm -hmm. Because look at the, you look at the TV this morning, they, they pick up the, the, they got to this guy, who pushed the guy off? Oh, right. Yeah, they got him this morning. Mm -hmm. Why do we have to deal with this? Why do we have to deal with this? He went on to say, my wife went to work this morning, Baptiste said as he wept, New York Post mm -hmm. reporting. When she got to 149th Street, she started crying on the train. She told me her heart broke when she got to the Grand Concourse. How would you expect me to feel? Uh, this is what's happening because the homelessness, the, the homeless and the criminal element has been allowed to run wild on New York City streets and New York City subways, as is the case on Chicago streets, as is the case on L platforms here. And right now, we've had such a surge in older model Hyundai and Kias. So you don't need a key to steal them. You just smash in the window or get it any way you can. You use a screwdriver. And this woman, her car was stolen yesterday, <clears throat> found four miles uh, away from her home, crashed, of course. And she just said something very simple that I think, you know, this shows that maybe people are starting to wake up around here. Maybe whoever did it didn't have nothing better to do. Like go to work like everybody else. And do, you know, honest living. And do Maybe. an honest living. Uh, well, they're just doing it for fun because they're just taking on joy rides and then they crash and then they steal somebody else's car. And it goes on and on. And we've had 572 in the last two months of older model Kia and Hyundai stolen. That's a problem. In New York State, um, this is interesting. Maud Marin has an op-ed of the New York Post. See if there are any parallels again to Illinois. Maude Marin is a former Democrat candidate for Congress. Abortion access was enshrined in New York state law in 2019, and it's not going to change. The 2018 blue wave in Albany gave Democrat legislators a supermajority, and they used it to pass bills codifying Roe. In other words, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe, nothing changed in New York. Women throughout the state still have access to safe and legal abortions. So every time Hochul talks about abortion, it just reminds me that she is not talking about the most pressing issue in our state rising crime or how many new yorkers are leaving our state to move to places with lower taxes and safer streets or the state's devastating educational results revealed in the naep progress scores some of the worst in the country and she's definitely not telling us how she'll make the, our city safer more affordable and a place people want to keep living in she goes on if hokel could run on her record she would but the governor doubled down on the failed bail reform laws continued Albany's pay-to-play politics with eye-popping contracts to campaign donors and actually found a way to make Governor Andrew Cuomo's bad COVID decision-making worse. And she goes on to contrast that with Lee Zeldin, who will remove out Alvin Bragg and make sure Manhattan is a DA who will uphold the laws and prosecute crime, which is why she's voting for Lee Zeldin on November 8th. Good. And Pro-abort. New York Democrat, a former Democrat congressional candidate, not only voting for him, but feeling compelled to uh, pen this op-ed and expose herself to the ire of the left by explaining exactly why she's voting for the Republican for governor there. And this is what he said yesterday that made me just stand up and go, I'm for you, Lee, if I lived in New York. My opponent just said she will not mandate COVID vaccines at this time. Let me be clear to all of the parents who are out there. I will not mandate COVID vaccines for your kids ever. 
I don't believe that there should be COVID vaccine mandates right now for our kids at SUNY and CUNY and community colleges and elsewhere, where just over a year ago, a whole bunch of heroes were turning to zeros, tens of thousands of people because of my opponent's healthcare worker COVID vaccine. What about polio vaccine? Would you, I believe that, would you, can I just finish the point? I, I believe that that mandate was wrong and that everyone who has been fired should be offered their jobs back with back pain. There shouldn't be any special celebrity COVID vaccine mandates like what we saw for people who play for the Mets or the Yankees or the Nets. If you want to have a special celebrity exemption, how about the NYPD officers, FDNY, teachers, healthcare workers? I do not support COVID vaccine mandates in any way, shape, or form. You want to deal with a healthcare worker shortage upstate and hospitals having services impacted? Well, then offer the people their jobs back. And by the way, do it with back pay and then you know the new york state supreme court reinstated all fired unvaccinated employees but he's talking about vaccine vaccination mandates for colleges and certain schools that they put in place her and cuomo well cuomo did and i i just thought he was powerful last night i loved him uh if we could get back to crime uh this post from mary wisniewski do you know who she is no you shouldn't no reason you should mary wisniewski posting on twitter yesterday I have ridden the CTA all my life. It has many great employees, and public transit is essential. However, after some scary incidents after dark, I will no longer take the L after evening rush hour. I'll do metro, bike, or taxi. The system is failing us, especially women alone. Mary Wisniewski is the press secretary for Cook County Chief Judge Tim Evans. How compelling is that statement, given the source? And what does that tell you about something we've addressed before? The Eastern Bloc mentality in Chicago and much of Illinois. I have a different life publicly than I have privately. Publicly, I sing from the hymnal of political orthodoxy. Privately, I tell the truth. The... Press Secretary for Chief Judge, Cook County Chief Judge Tim Evans, won't ride the CTA. The system is failing us, especially women alone. And the political power structure in Cook County, and by extension, Illinois, says just the opposite. She said she'll take the Metro, bike, or taxi. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I wonder if she'll come on the show and talk about more about that. I wonder what she's if, experienced to make her tweet something out like this. But maybe does she have this discussion with her boss that, hey, maybe if I don't come to work one day, maybe it's because I got attacked on the CTA, Judge Evans. Well, uh, Chief Judge Jim, uh, Tim Evans, of course, um, may not be as sympathetic depending on who is committing the crimes. Oh. Because as we know from the chief judge, who uh, also doubles as a neurologist, at right. least in his own mind, uh, if you're under 25 years old, you don't have the ability to distinguish right from wrong. Don't have the prefrontal cortex oh that is developed. And the prefrontal cortex of the brain does not itself fully develop until you're closer to the age of 25 years of age. This kid is 16. There's no way that he would have the prefrontal cortex already developed. So while I can't talk about that particular case, I'm just talking about the typical 16-year-old. He doesn't have that part of the brain developed that makes it possible for him to distinguish between the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. 
and he's talking about a 16-year-old who shot an innocent little 8-year-old girl in broad daylight on the streets of Chicago. And he said that he doesn't have a, the frontal cortex formation to decide between right and wrong. It's one of the, the most him uh, out. breathtaking statements that uh, has been made uh, by an Illinois politician, which is what Tim Evans is. And that's really saying something. But it, it is such great insight into the mindset of people whose prefrontal cortexes are fully developed, like Tim Evans. You want to understand how it could be that we have people in charge of the criminal justice system who are not interested in imposing justice on criminals on behalf of victims and for the benefit of the law-abiding more generally? He's well, they're telling they're, they're 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 telling you why they're telling you why we have the Safety Act. They're explaining their view on criminal conduct, and that's what's on the ballot on November eighth in New York, in Chicago, and in Illinois, and just about every other state with a major metropolitan area or even a mid-sized metropolitan area that has these defund the police decarcerate criminals mentality, as does the power structure in Chicago and Illinois. But he's the reason why 94 people are out on electronic monitoring who've committed violent crimes. He is the reason why. I mean, that guy is in charge. Don't ever vote for him or support him, knowing that a 26-year-old, we send men to young men to war at the age of 18. Please. And uh, for those still clinging to this notion that the Pritzker purge law is just about releasing nonviolent offenders from county jails. We took a look at Lake County. Let's go out to the suburbs since Lake County in their infinite wisdom, the residents of Lake County put this Eric Reinhardt in as their state's attorney, who is a short, fat, white version of Kim Fox. What's going on in Lake County? 190 accused criminals who've been incarcerated in Lake County for more than four months with cash bail. That goes away January 1. 175 of those 190 currently charged with one or more violent crimes. Common charges include murder, 50 inmates, unlawful use or ownership of a gun, 44 inmates, rape, 31, armed robbery, 12, aggravated battery, 9, aggravated driving under the influence, 9. They're all coming out. The only non-violent offenders in the group of more than 500 and five, more than 500 inmates, 505 total. The only non-violent offenders in the group, 13 men charged with selling illegal drugs, two Chicago ex-cons charged with identity theft. I mean, technically non-violent, but I don't know if you would characterize, say, a fentanyl dealer as a non-violent offender, and that's one of the inmates. A fentanyl dealer who has been charged in connection with 60 burglaries across Lake County. Yeah, no, I'm going to pass. Is that lock, nonviolent? Lock them up. <laughs> is that, by the way, um, some of these individuals, including the, the person I just described, are also recipients of payroll protection loans. Gee, I wonder if there's any thievery going on with that program. I think we know the answer. Um, there are other nonviolent offenders. For yeah. example, a 51-year-old man arrested in Lincolnshire has at least six prior convictions and has served state prison time for forging checks. He's being held on $300,000 bond. Technically a nonviolent offender. Should he just take a walk, too, so that he can fraud 
other people, as apparently is his life's work. Again, the supermajority of inmates behind bars in state prisons are for violent crimes. Less than 4% are incarcerated for something drug-related, and even you have to break that uh, number down more when you talk about dealers and repeat offenders deal, uh, that are uh, uh, that are dealing in very dangerous drugs, fentanyl being at the top of the list. Chris and Carrie, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, Amy, next time you're in front of Governor Pritzker, how about you ask him if he'd be comfortable having his wife and daughter ride the CTA lines alone? <laughs> Um, and, and we could do this any time of day, really. Okay. Um, and how about even uh, Kim Fox? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that majority of people out there don't know what she looks like. And Kim Fox won't go alone. back to work because of COVID. She's still at home, she claims, because she's waiting for COVID to subside. Isn't that I mean, sick? It's a dance point. It's a dance point. Uh, say one thing, do another. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's sickening. And ask that question. I bet you there's a, 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 a humorous answer to that one. Thanks for the call, Chris. They're, they weren't even in Illinois, let alone riding the CTA. Maybe if they have a horse car, uh, right. his family could ride on the CTA. Nick on the northwest side. Yeah, thank you. You know what you're talking about, you two guys. Uh, how much do we want to bet that this Wisniewski woman, if she opens her mouth again, well, that's electronically with a Twitter or a thing or whatever, but that uh, we won't hear from her again as an employee there. She might even say, I resigned, but maybe I'm not saying she'd be pressured to. Or, you know, something, you know, the, this whole thing is getting out of control where, uh, uh, like uh, the lady said that she was afraid to ride the subways after a certain hour uh, because, you know, you don't know what to expect. I don't want to ride, I don't ride the subways for a long time before all this stuff started because I saw what was coming with the out-of-control situation. And you have a great show. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Nick. Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Poli Sci, University of Chicago, friend of the show, writing about this at realclarepolitics.com. Voters don't want to change the subject. They want to change policies. They want much better public safety, fairly administered. They are sick of virtue signaling, wishful thinking, and criminals released to repeat their offenses. That's what they're saying to pollsters. Soon, that's what they will say at the ballot box. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. This uh, case hasn't gotten the notoriety that it deserves. There hasn't been the press inquiry that is demanded. What else is new? Because this casts their bosses, I mean, Pritzker and the Democrats, socialists in charge of Illinois, in a negative light. And since they serve as the comm shop for those individuals, they don't want to make it too uncomfortable while keeping up appearances to fool just enough of the residents of Illinois into believing that they're serious journalists representing legitimate news outlets. They're neither. Talking about the Jennifer Thornley case, we've brought you this case before. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Thornley was this employee at the Illinois State Police Merit Board who engaged in all sorts of wrongdoing, criminal wrongdoing, prosecuted for it, being prosecuted for it. And was the subject of a whistleblower lawsuit that was dismissed by the Attorney General of the state, Kwame Raoul. Gee, I wonder why. Kwame Raoul, who's received millions of dollars in campaign contributions from J.B. Pritzker. Well, there's an appeal that's been filed on the matter in uh, the appellate court in Sagamon County. Uh, Reading from the 90-page appeal, the case concerns whether the attorney general can arbitrarily, or even worse, based on political conflicts of interest, require a court to dismiss a case under the Illinois False Claims Act, notwithstanding undisputed allegations and facts demonstrating the people of the state have been defrauded. Emily Fox filed suit on behalf of the people of the state of Illinois against former Illinois State Police Merit Board employee Jennifer Thornley. Fox alleged a multifaceted scheme by Thornley that included resume fraud and payment for fraudulent overtime, fraudulent expenses, and a fraudulent workers' comp claim. In total, this cost the people of the state of Illinois more than a half million dollars. Fox provided the Office of the Executive Inspector General and the Attorney General evidence uh, documenting how Thornley, a former political operative of Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker and a personal friend of Governor's wife, M.K. Pritzker, committed her scheme. The included, this included evidence that high-ranking members of the governor's administration participated to facilitate the fraud, including Ann Spillane, the governor's general counsel, who used to be with Lisa Madigan, daddy's little oh. girl, when she was AG. Thornley texted M.K. Pritzker seeking the governor's help Thornley, again, Thornley texted M.K. Pritzker, the governor's wife, seeking the governor's help. Thornley, who never worked in the governor's office, listed the governor as her personal supervisor. <laughs> Which is fraudulent. Well, she's well, working for the Illinois State uh, Police Merit Board. Her direct report is not the – she's not a direct report to the governor. Right, she's not. a direct report to the executive director of the Illinois State Police Merit Board. Anyway. And wasn't that board – it was when everybody fired eventually from that board or let go. Yeah, there was a lot of movement, yes. Okay. Uh, she listed the governor as her personal supervisor, provided his personal phone number in support of her fraudulent workers' comp claim. <laughs> oh, she's got some onions on her. Oof. And Spillane, Ann Spillane, personally 
became personally involved, accepting the facially false and fraudulent claim directly and then assuring through intervention with CMS, Central Management Services, that the fraudulent workers' comp claim would be paid. It's no surprise, I'm reading directly from the recitation of the facts in this appeal. It is no surprise that in light of the evidence of the governor and Ms. Spillane's involvement, both the Office of Executive Inspector General and the Attorney General refused to act. What was surprising was that after Ms. Fox filed her case, the Attorney General sought to suppress it by seeking the case's dismissal. In his motion to dismiss, the Attorney General did not dispute the facts of the fraud. He offered no rationale for seeking dismissal. Instead, he argued that he has the unfettered discretion to require dismissal of such a case, with or without reason. Dear Attorney General Kwame Rule subsequently argued that a constitutional due process limitation on arbitrary government conduct has no basis in Illinois law as applied to himself in this context. Of course, that is not the law. But we don't have the rule of law in Illinois. We have the rule of men, as Emily Fox and her counsel are finding out the hard way. And remember Kwame Raul when asked about this case, Marion Ahern asked him, and he was so arrogant in his reply and Pritzker standing behind him laughing at the question. Why did you forward the Thornley work compensation fraud case to the appellate prosecutor's office instead of prosecuting it yourself? What's the conflict within your office handling that case? Well, I'll take you through the, the there's an employee who made an allegations with regards to um, sexual harassment um, in that case we become the lawyer for the state and so we're engaged uh, in adverse to the person making the allegations after an investigation uh, it's revealed that there's potential for fraud from that employee it will look like retaliation if you're prosecuting the person that your adverse so it's your typical conflict which is common we get cases referred to our office from state's attorneys where there's a conflict uh, throughout the state we do murder cases we do i mean this guy is your attorney general because people rarely hear his voice he is bad at his job that's another reason why you should vote for tom devore uh so the claims of sexual harassment. Yes. Let's so Jennifer that. Thornley made a claim of sexual harassment against the executive director. Outside counsel was retained, McGuire Woods. They did an executive. We've talked about this, too, but right. to refresh everybody's recollection, we've read from their finding. The bottom line is I think it was something like a 500-page report that they produced per the investigation they did. Independent counsel retained to do the investigation. No evidence of no evidence to support the claim, the sexual harassment claims of Jen, Jenny Thornley, who was, one would argue, using that as a cover for her actual fraudulent activities. So Kwame Arul's statement you just heard makes no sense. Right. You have a determination on the sexual harassment claims. Now let's go back to these fraudulent claims where there has been evidence provided to support the claim. And, oh, by the way, why would you dismiss a whistleblower complaint out of hand? Why wouldn't you? You're not. You, what, I mean, why would you not let that go wherever the facts lead, essentially? What is the point of having a whistleblower statute that would 
hold the highest uh, those uh, those in positions of of most power, starting with the governor, accountable like anybody else. What is the point of that if you have attorney general whose political campaigns and thus political future is being underwritten by the governor who can just come in and dismiss the claim? What kind of whistleblower statute is that? 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. You follow? You've got Kwame Raoul not acting. I mean, this is the great claim that the left used to make about Bill Barr illegitimately. But since this is their position and their concern, explain to me how Kwame Raoul is acting as the people's attorney rather than the governor's personal attorney. And using his state power to protect the governor and the governor's office. Because apparently it's the governor, it's his wife, it's senior officials. And here's the question that Marion Ahern, I mean, uh, thank you for asking that question. But here's the question that nobody's followed up on. Why? What is so important about Jennifer Thornley that you're scrambling these kind of resources to try to protect her even after... She is now uh, facing prosecution for those fraudulent activities contained in this appeal that I just referenced. Yeah, she's got workers come to the tune of, what, $70,000? What, why? What is the relationship? What is going on there? Why does she have your cell phones? I mean, obviously, you don't just give your cell phone out, especially if you're the first lady of Illinois. They have yeah, a friendship. But But it's one thing to have a friendship. It's another thing to use the machinery of the state to insulate somebody who has committed fraud, to insulate somebody who has made unsubstantiated sexual harassment claims, to insulate somebody who thinks that she reports only directly to you and not to her immediate supervisors at a state agency. There's something else going on here, and nobody's asking the questions. And, of course, you're not going to get Kwame Raoul or J.B. Pritzker to volunteer any answers either. And what disability? Because it says the Chicago Tribune said that she was paid more than 71000 in workers' comp and disability benefits. What's yeah, the well, disability? She, she, she made a fraudulent claim. Yeah. She, she also committed overtime fraud, allegedly, which is, you know, fairly easy to track. It, it, this is just – this is a very strange case. You say in the grand scheme of everything else going on, uh, how important is this? Well, it is important. That's not the $500,000. I mean – the state, the Illinois taxpayers get frauded out of $500,000 every five seconds. It's the same dynamic we have from this governor where he gets on in front of a podium, you know, airlifted to, a, to be set behind a podium. And he tells of the wonders of the administration and a new day and things are going so swimmingly and the uh, and the, the battle days of pay to play and. Uh, different rules for different people are over, and yet we have another example, like we have examples on all of these other policy fronts, that suggests that that's a fraud. That Jennifer Thornley is not the only one committing a fraud on the people of Illinois. Pritzker's is a political one. Hers is a financial one. And on an ancillary note, I just love that Jack Garcia, who was the alleged you know, uh, offender— uh, he's the uh, judge is going to lift it so that he can pursue his lawsuit against Jennifer Thornley. Right. Because where does he go to get his reputation back? They said that, you know, she leaned over and he, 
used his right arm and brushed his arm against her left breast, which is a bunch of hogwash. Right. Jack Garcia was the executive director. He was right. the one that was falsely accused of sexual right. harassment per the McGuire Woods report that cleared him and found no evidence to substantiate her claims. I mean, this is it's not that complicated of a case. I but it he wasn't even in the building that day. But it's really complicated. It's really complicated to come up with a position that explains or to come up with an explanation that explains Kwame Raul's position and that it explains the relationship between the governor and this sort of otherwise anonymous state employee, former state employee. And those seem to me questions that should be answered. It's a, it's, it's a relatively small thing that may be indicative of a much bigger thing. I think it is. Nobody's interested. Jeff, downtown, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Jeff. Jeff, are you there? Going once. Jeff is gone. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I just hope that now that this appeal is filed and we're trying to provide some profile to it, that at least some questions can be asked down the stretch. Uh, the big boy is going to be at Morton West High School tomorrow, I understand, to commit another fraud. Tell us how wonderful things are going in K-12 through education under his stewardship. And I got some Morton West data f- for you that we'll get to after Mike Scott's newscast. But there are going to be opportunities in the next two weeks for the Chicago or Springfield Press Corps to ask questions. You've got a 90-page document that lays this out very succinctly with all the relevant legal citations. This is not coming from Darren Bailey. It's not coming from Dan Proft. It's just being profiled by us and perhaps a few others, maybe wire points and a few others that will pick it up that are actually interested in holding people in charge accountable for what they do and understanding why they do it. And all of this, you know, landmark ethics reform. I mean, this is what we hear from these politicians. It's always landmark ethics reform. And then, you know, five seconds later, uh, the next state legislator gets indicted for, you know, federal on federal corruption charges. It's landmarks, landmark whistleblower statute. So people can hold their elected officials accountable right until we're the target, and then I use my attorney general bought and paid for to kill it. Oh, and by the way, since we're talking on that, I'll just remind people, Pritzker has also given half a million dollars to the two Dems running for state Supreme Court. Oh, half We've a mentioned this before, and so, so again, are they going to be repeating. compromised? Yeah. Are they going to be compromised on any... A constitutional challenge that may reach the state Supreme Court to the to the Safety Act, to the Pritzker Purge Law, any of these other matters. The undermining of the whistleblower statute, the very creative interpretation that Kwame Raoul has of his powers as attorney general. Are those are those underwritten by Pritzker? Are they likely to intervene on behalf of the people of Illinois, on behalf of the rule of law? Levi in Goose Island. Yeah, hey, I actually live in Porch Park. Um, anyway, well, uh, so note that on your put, file. Yeah, yeah, note that on the file, guys. <laughs> hey, anyway, uh, I, um, you know, you hear a lot of these like commercials from Pritzker about like, oh, he's put a pause on this tax and a pause on that tax and a pause on all these taxes. Like, dude, you implemented these taxes to begin <laughs> right. with, so like, you're not even right. doing anything. Right. Yeah. They should call it right. Uh, 
hundreds of dollars in temporary tax relief in exchange for thousands of dollars in permanent tax increases. What a deal. Gee, thank you. Where do I sign up? Oh, wait, I'm already signed up. Just another Pritzker fraud. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So a big decision from a New York State court yesterday. overturning the city's VAX mandate on city employees that had resulted in some 2,000 city employees being fired. The court saying, based upon the petitioner's vague denials of their exemptions, the fact they were kept at full duty for several months while their exemptions were pending, the mayor's executive order granting exceptions to certain classes of people and the lifting of the private sector mandate, the court finds the order to be arbitrary and capricious and my favorite the they put the, in the notes being vaccinated does not prevent an individual from contracting or transmitting covid-19 which right. they knew and they Im- implemented anyway they argued so so it's it, you can't make a public health argument as the court said this was about compliance not public health exactly so about you power were, and control not about saving your life you were suggesting something that's untrue there's nothing in the record the court went on to say Nothing in the record to support the rationality of keeping a vaccination mandate for public employees while vacating the mandate for private sector employees or creating a carve out for certain professions like athletes, artists and performers. Right. And so we have the same arbitrary and capriciousness in Illinois, for example, uh, vax mandate for K through 12 staff, no vax mandate for higher ed staff. How do you square that circle? You can't. It's based on politics, not based on public health. And so the question comes to Governor Spaulding about whether or not he will move to include the COVID vaccine as part of the schedule of vaccines kids have to get to be in school. This is a question that dem socialist COVIDians are dodging all over the country, and he's been dodging for the last week. So where is he? 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. I don't know why, and Craig Wall from Channel 7, he had a one-on-one with him, and he didn't ask him the question that all Illinois parents want answered. I mean, he did during the debate, Mike Scott helped, helped me out with this, he said that he will make his decision upon CDC guidance, which sounds to me like he's going to be all in for putting COVID vaccines on the child immunization list so that your kids can go to school. Why do we have to divine this? Why don't you just tell us what your position is? Right. Because he's a coward. This is a state issue. Right. You're the chief executive of the state. So what is your view? And this would be, should, should be something that uh, both he and Darren Bailey disclose because this is something that could inform the votes of a lot of parents around the state. Darren Bailey disclosed it, saying there would be no such mandate right. if he were governor. So why can't Governor Spaulding make his position clear? Well, he's dodging the media. He's hiding from them. He's only talking to media that will be friendly to him. And, they're t- you know, it's the that's, same that's old all, stale almost stuff. Almost all of the media. 
Well, I mean, I, I don't want to hear about abortion yet again, and they talk about the Second Amendment again. I, we know those answers. We want this question answered. And it's, it's day seven now. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's day 11 of him running from the media. And today he has no public appearances yet again. He's trying to dodge this until after the election or before as many people can vote, you know, in the early voting, because now, you know, early, early voting at other centers opened up on Monday. And getting and in, all the votes in before he makes a comment about well, he's, this. He's got a public appearance tomorrow. He's at Morton West High School at noon. Uh, Morton West High School. I wonder what he's going to be talking about there. The the great success of of K through twelve school systems under his stewardship. Is that the message? Is he going to address the decline in NAEP test scores? Uh, more substantial among minority students than white students, but decline across the board in reading and math. Uh, since he's at Morton West, will he uh, address this? In 2021, 20% of the students at Morton West were at grade level in English and 10% in math. Oh and and like CPS, what, what do you think the graduation rate was there? 70%? Yeah, 72%. Oh. 20% proficient at grade level in math, I mean, excuse me, in English, and 10% in math, and yet the graduation rate is 72%. How do you square that? They just, trust me, these teachers are like, just get out of here, go. Uh-huh. Well, that's why for the uh, small percentage of kids that go on to post-secondary education, you have a high percentage of those kids who are taking remedial classes in their first year in school, whether it's at a, a four-year university or community college. Why? Because they're not prepared to do coursework at that level. Why? Because they're at 20% and 10% proficiency in reading and math. This is the system. Is there, is there an aspect of any Illinois institution, I mean as a sector, not an individual school, is there any Illinois institution that is not a complete fraud on the people financing it and depending on it. I really would like to know. Perhaps I'm missing one. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And then we had President Biden yesterday getting his 16,000th COVID shot. No, he's actually got his sixth booster shot for the bivariant, whatever. And, and telling us that every death is preventable, but saying again that, you know, if you don't get vaccinated now, you shouldn't. You'll be putting family members in danger at Thanksgiving. That's. <laughs> they're back to it. So take precautions. Stay safe. You can spend Thanksgiving with family and friends Thanks. with a peace of mind, knowing Thanks. that you've done your part for everyone's well-being. My administration is doing our part. We've made these updated vaccines easy to get and available for free at tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pound sand. Yeah, you can spend I mean, your Thanksgiving God, with family. You... you can spend your Thanksgiving with family and friends, or you can take them directly to the graveyard. <laughs> I mean, literally, he said, you know, if you don't get this booster, you're going to hurt other people. I, what? I, you've had COVID. Everyone has had COVID. More people that have been vaccinated that I know of COVID than people that have been unvaccinated. And um, that's not all. You don't just get uh, that uh, photo op there with him taking his sixth jab or whatever it is you also have a white house video a la the chicago department of public health just in time for halloween and thanksgiving you can see it you excuse me you can't see it 
but you can hear it. Avoid a spooky Thanksgiving. <coughs> oh my god. <coughs> I mean, and then then at the end, he's trying to say, well, but now we we should start fresh with COVID. Like, what, what? As we enter this new moment in the battle against COVID, let's use it to start fresh as a country, to put all the old battles over COVID behind us, to put all the partisan politics aside. We've already lost over one million Americans to COVID. Over one million Americans. So get boosted and you'll save lives. Yeah, right. Let's <laughs> start afresh by mandating vaccines on kids that don't need them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The lowest so. risk group in the world. Let's force them to get this shot that we're not even sure what exactly how it's affecting everyone. Because there's still so, studies out, folks. It's pretty rare, but there there is some. There are some politicians that are actually charting a different course good Who? that are actually offering a mea culpa the new premier of the canadian province of alberta danielle smith has apologized for the government mandating vaccine passports during the pandemic telling her party conference we are not qr codes <gasps> she said she's exploring the option to pardon albertans who were fined or arrested for violating the, the draconian covid policies and she hoped to purge the database of QR codes. She's the anti-Trudeau, apparently. So Good for her. But why we still, I mean, if you're a foreigner and you're not vaccinated, you still can't come to America. Do, do people realize that that is still in place? Sure you can. You just cross the border illegally. Jeff and Lombard, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. This is Jeff. And uh, I'd like to say I love you guys. I listen to you on the way to the gym every morning. But my big concern is I've got a son in a Catholic school, and uh, he's not been vaccinated, nor are we going to. However, what's going to happen with Pritzker's uh, definitely he's going to mandate it. What options do we have? I mean, I don't know about religious exemptions. I mean, I I understand polio, measles. We've done this as parents. We get it. But adding something to the child vaccination or immunization list in order for your kids to go to school, that is, I mean, we want parental well, the, control. This well, is the, the polio and measles. That. The polio and measles argument at birth, uh, it, it doesn't work anymore because polio and measles is to prevent the contraction of those diseases. Okay. And we know the vaccine doesn't prevent the contraction of COVID, so they're not parallels, are they? Right. You can't even. They shouldn't even be in the same conversation it's more like comparing it to mandating the flu shot as right. a condition of going to school in terms of what you know the catholic schools um you know you have an appeal to the archdiocese or the diocese or the archdiocese and in your case if you're in the burbs probably the diocese joliet diocese but yeah i don't know um private schools are going to have probably wide berth on this um so you're going to find out just exactly what kind of private school, or in this case, Catholic school, you're sending your kids to at the moment, I think. I mean, like don't the let them Jeff. lie to you anymore. I mean, Dr. Walensky, one who said repeatedly, if you get the shot, you can't get COVID or spread it to others. She has COVID. She's six shots in. Kevin in Austin, Texas. 
Sean, I listen to you uh, often. It's not, and, Sean, it's not Sean. It's I don't not know. Sean. Oh, Damn it. What's the matter with me? Uh, uh, all kinds of things, apparently. Yes, it is. Dan's well, much better looking and that no, Much better looking with the head, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's frustrating listening to this, and uh, I'd gone up recently, is that uh, Illinois is just a disaster area. All you have to do is ask Pritzker himself. He's been declaring it for 35 months now or, or more. And I'm curious, what is a common sense conservative to do in the last 13 uh, days before the election? Or the last day, it's not really the election, it's the last day to vote. Uh, how are people to do the blocking and tackling in the last, to get, you know, to, to help Bailey at this point? Or any uh, Republican in a well, I mean, it's the, thanks for the call. It's the same old, same old, man. What do you mean? What are they? What are you supposed to do in the closing days? The same thing you're supposed to do every day. Be an opinion leader in the circles of influence in which you live and operate. Be a source of information. Challenge people when they say things demonstrably untrue. The uh, Pritzker purge law is just about letting nonviolent marijuana users out of jail. They're not in jail. It's a lie. Not right. true. You're ridiculous. You don't know what you're talking about. Here's the data. Just Here's who's actually in jail from county calm. sheriffs. Here's what county prosecutors are saying. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop talking like that. You make yourself sound like someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Knock on doors. Make phone calls. Send friend-to-friend cards. Talk to people in your professional associations, in your community groups, civic groups, your at work, wherever. I mean, this is this is this, this is, is a, this time. is this is. But this is not complicated. Speak up. Yeah. I talk to my coworkers all the time, like, well, what are we doing? And I just say, well, this is a list of judges. And I just, you know, because they want change. And they've been diehard Democrats their entire lives. Clay and Wheeling. Morning, Amy. Uh, This is Clay wishing he lived in Texas. Uh, I believe I saw that after the CDC unanimously voted uh, 15-15 to uh, send this vaccine to the kids in the school, that they increased the price by 400%. Did anybody else see this? Uh, we mentioned it yesterday. I don't think it was quite 400%, but the announcement last week by Pfizer was that it was going to go up by oh. a, by a, by a range. It's significant, though. There's no question about that. And good, so one, one wonders. Good, good for Pfizer. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm sure no, none of the uh, board members there have ever worked in the CDC, and I'm sure none of the... CDC members will ever have jobs at Pfizer or Moderna. Yeah, yeah. Well, they right. sold. We'll just ignore that. They Agency sold the shot. Thanks, guys. Right. They sold Thanks, the shot guys. to the government for thirty-five dollars. Now it's going on market for anywhere between one hundred fifteen and one hundred thirty-five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but they said for, insurance will cover apps. it. It depends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But back to this, like this. this... Uh, what? What? No, one oh. other thing. Yes. Uh, on on putting the vax on the list. Yes. As I understand it, the, so the schedule for uh, vaccines that kids must get to go to school. It indemnifies the manufacturer from lawsuits. Right. Yeah. So if something well, happens an and there's an that's adverse an, reaction, you're, you're screwed. That's an important point, this, this ongoing indemnification of uh, pharma companies for experimental vaccines. And as for the New York ruling, I think Chicago should today reinstate all employees who were fired for not being, you know, for being unvaccinated yeah, and give well. them back pay. Well, they should. Yeah, well, of course they should. But they should All have done it before the be New York. I mean, yeah, I'm sure Lightfoot and Arwadi are hanging on your every word. What they should be doing versus what they're doing. 
Frank in Arlington Heights. Yeah, that statement from uh, Biden was really rich, that we all need to start fresh and put, put aside all the partisan battles. When this man is the most hyper-partisan president we've ever had, and I would have to say, being a, a teacher and a, a student of U.S. history, he's the worst president we've ever had. I, I'm teaching about some of the different other pretty bad presidents, like Pierce and Buchanan, Taylor, Jimmy Carter, I've not, not, not gotten to him yet, but you know what? Biden's worse than any of them. You know, I mean, some of these other guys had some feeling for people. Biden is just in your face all the time with how horrible you are if you don't agree with him and how uh, you're a threat to democracy. I don't think we, I, I would have ever, I, I, I've looked at all kinds of stuff on Buchanan and Pierce and, and others. I don't, I don't recall anything like that from any of them. Do you recall any of those presidents uh, characterizing half the country as semi-fascist? No, I don't. I don't. And, you know, I mean, Buchanan, he's often viewed as the worst, the guy right before Lincoln. You know, because they say he didn't try that much to, um, you know, to stop the secession. But, you know, I, I read a biography on him. I think he tried more than, than, uh, than people give him credit for. He was unsuccessful. He was overwhelmed. Um, he, met, he wasn't very good at his job. But, I, you know, he wasn't an evil man. Um, he, he wasn't like this, calling other people, half the country, a threat to democracy and, and, and unacceptable. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. You're the most hyper-partisan president in history, and we're just supposed to forget all about it. Thanks forget for, it. Thanks for the call, Frank. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. James Freeman in his Best of the Web column has another good one about the D.C. press corps' misinformation. The topic, a favorite of theirs, climate change. Breathlessly reporting a new study about climate change. The headline, study finds climate change is bringing more intense rain to the U.S. Oh, please. We just had one of the driest Septembers on record in Chicago. When it rains, it pours, the story goes. A paper published Tuesday in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, which I know you're a subscriber, Amy. Yes, please put the copy back on my desk immediately. Finds it's raining harder in most of the United States. Written by researchers at Northwestern University. Oh, I feel the value of my degree going down. The study written by researchers at Northwestern tied the results to climate change and to warmer air's ability to hold more water. Record rain is hitting drought-stricken areas. That's not good news. The findings echo the fundamental laws of physics and thermodynamics, as well as the evidence from decades of research, and highlight the real-time effect that humans are having on the weather and climate. That's from the story. Freeman uh, goes on to note the story. Paragraph after paragraph describes uh, the purported link between people's activities and a rainier planet. Well, that post story was too much for Roger Pelkey Jr., who's an environmental studies professor at the University of Colorado. Oh, no. And he pointed out what the paper actually says. 
<laughs> you got to read the whole thing, uh, DC Press Corps. What the paper actually says, quoting from the paper, Although we examine precipitation trends during a time of increasing greenhouse gas concentrations and find similarities with greenhouse gas force model projections, our analysis is insufficient to directly attribute observed changes to ongoing anthropogenic climate change. So, you know, other than the fact that they could draw no conclusion between what they were uh, describing and man man's activities other than that you know the entire angle of the story that the planet is rainier because man is bad and is polluting the planet other than that it's a wonderful story yeah and um this uh, follows the reporting uh in the run-up to when the wake of hurricane ian that uh of course they just repeat the talking point regardless of the data and i actually used our next guest data to rebut some people online that uh, hurricanes are getting more frequent and more intense. And if you look back at hurricanes, as Bjorn Lundberg has, dating back to the beginning of the 20th century, you just can't find any statistical evidence to support that claim. But the claims are made nonetheless. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Bjorn Lundberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Think Tank, author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn Lumberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. It's good to be here. So, uh, you know, it just it, it just won't stop. They won't stop because they have this conclusion they've drawn, and they're going to continue flinging mashed potatoes at uh, the Renaissance painters <laughs> as long as they have to until everybody gets in line. Well, there's certainly a tendency to just tell you all the bad stories. Look, that's what media does in a lot of different cases, but it doesn't give us a good understanding of what's actually happening in the world. Uh, So look, we actually believe that in the long run, climate change, which is a real problem, will cause fewer but stronger hurricanes. And overall, that will actually be somewhat of a problem. But the way that it's always and consistently only being framed as this the world is just going to end, this is the end of the world, is not only terrifying, and of course it's scaring our kids, but it also leads to really, really bad decisions. And that's why I think it's incredibly important to get people to understand both arguments. You need to have both sides of this conversation. Yes, for instance, as temperatures rise, you're going to see more heat waves, but as you have temperatures rising, you're also going to see fewer cold waves because massively more people die from cold than from heat. It's actually a net benefit right now. Uh, So uh, over the last 20 years, as temperatures have risen globally, we see about 116,000 more people die every year from heat waves. And, you know, we're constantly being told that. But what we don't hear is 283,000 fewer people die every year from cold. You kind of need to hear both sides of that story in order to make your judgment, right? Yeah, and well, it's it's of course it's the classic problem. It's it's the seen versus the unseen. So you don't see, except maybe in a table, two hundred eighty-three thousand fewer people have died from cold. You but you have the anecdotal stories of of Im- impact of weather changes in particular locales, and uh, and that you know that that and you can have some pictures with that, exactly. and then you can you know whip <laughs> people into a frenzy over that. Well, how yes, is... and and you know, at the sorry, go ahead. 
was just going to say, and how has, you know, 24-hour cable news affected this? Because they, they blow every storm out of proportion. And I, I think that's why oh, some absolutely. people didn't leave because they thought it was, you know, here, here we are again. I call it the, you know, the fake COVID, the fake hurricane. Is it really going to be as bad as they say it's going to be? Mm, yeah. And, and, and look, hurricanes are dangerous things. So we definitely want to know about this and we want to have good advice on whether we should leave or stay. But the fundamental way to fix hurricanes and fix most other problems that we face is not by making climate policy. Remember, even if we dramatically changed our emissions in the U.S. or in Europe, it would have just a tiny impact in the sense that it would mean it would be slightly less, much warmer by the end of the century. If you actually want to help people, you make sure you have better building codes. You make sure you don't subsidize people for building in stupid places, for instance, by subsidizing their hurricane insurance. You make sure you have better zoning. You make sure that you have better buildings. These are simple things that could actually dramatically cut down on current impacts of hurricanes. And not only the hurricanes that may be uh, additionally fueled by climate change, but also all the hurricanes that we used to have. So it's simply a much better, much more effective, and of course, much cheaper and uh, and much simpler things that we should be focusing on first. It's like when people are really worried about, uh, about you know, uh, the, the the way that you see more burning, for instance, in some parts of the uh, of the west of the U.S. Well, mostly that's because a lot of people have built into places where it burns. Maybe we should not allow that. Maybe we should make sure people don't build right next to places that get burned up. Uh, again, these are simple things. It's not rocket science, and because we're so scared, we actually forget to think about what are the smartest ways to deal with these issues. Well, and, and you can't help but notice the uh, focus of the eco-hysterics, which is always the West, They're, and particularly the United States. They're always pounding on the United States, and then you get governors like Newsom uh, and others to uh, conjure up these imaginary deadlines by which they'll ma- their, their cars will magically transition from uh, fossil fuel to electric and so on and so forth. And yet they at the same time, they say it's a you know, you're saving the planet. So it's by definition a global issue. Well, if it's a global issue, then what are you going to do about uh, the Chinese communists? China's emissions growth from half the United States to almost 300 percent of the United States in the last three thirty years. But uh, we don't see the same focus on uh, other big industrialized countries like China that we see on Western countries, particularly the U.S. Hey. Exactly. And and actually, it's two things. First of all, we should be incredibly happy for humanity that a lot more people have access to a lot more energy. I mean, remember, China over the last 30 years probably pulled out almost a billion people of, of, from poverty. That's an amazing achievement. And, you know, that is what happens when you actually get people cheap, affordable and reliable energy. And we should be happy to see that happen in India and in Africa as well. But it also tells, and that's your exact point, it tells you that you're never going to succeed in saying, well, let's all you know, freeze a little more, let's all be a little less well-off and, and, and use ineffective uh, uh, energy sources that you might sometimes not actually have. That's never going to work. What you do need to focus on is get innovation so that we get these technologies that will actually allow us to emit less CO2 
and get richer. That was what the U.S. did with the fracking revolution. You basically made gas much, much cheaper. And because gas emits about half of what coal does in CO2, you reduced your CO2 emissions uh, both during Obama and Trump and neither because of President Obama or President Trump. This was because you made technology such that gas became cheaper and obviously everyone switched from coal to gas. That's how you get other nations to cut their carbon emissions as well. Uh, what's your view on uh, what we've done here on, with this administration, uh, the sort of skinny Green New Deal that was passed that uh, <laughs> gives John Podesta, I don't know, $125, $150 billion to invest as he sees fit in green technologies? Yeah. So, look, the intention is good, but fundamentally you're going to spend a lot of money mostly in things that we already know don't work and not the right way to focus on it, for instance, on electric cars and solar and wind, all three of which we know are not predominantly the way that you're going to solve this problem. What you do need to do is spend more money on very new technologies like fourth generation nuclear, on fusion, on a lot of other proposals that potentially could power the rest of the 21st century, this would be incredibly cheap, much, much cheaper than what we're right now spending on subsidizing solar and wind and others. But we should be spending it much more directed to the things that would actually work. Uh, just remember, the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act is going to cost almost $400 billion. And if you plug in what the Obama administration, it's, sorry, <laughs> what the Biden administration itself believes that it's going to cut in emissions, in the UN climate model, you get a result from less than a thousandth of a degree Fahrenheit to little more than three one hundredths of a degree Fahrenheit. So this is not what's going to make, make a big difference by the end of the century. It is having a trivial impact. This is not how you solve global warming. The way you do solve it is through smarter, cheaper investment in green energy research so that we can come up with the technologies that not just rich, well-meaning Americans want, but also the Chinese, the Indians, and the Africans want. When we're talking about, you know, tenths of a point of difference based on choosing one policy path over the other, and we're projecting out, we're projecting that out over, you know, multiple generations, 50, 100 years, I mean, does uh, the climate... Uh, mean temperature increasing by two tenths of a percent versus three tenths or four tenths is that meaningful in terms of impact? Not, not really. No, and and that's of course also why I'm I'm trying. It's actually even less than that. Right, we're talking one hundredth of a degree Fahrenheit, uh, and and of course nobody's going to be able to measure this by the end of the uh, of of the century. It doesn't mean it's not meaningful in the sense that you know obviously this is not just the U.S. that should do it, but it does give you a sense of how little a lot of your money is actually going to change the climate, and that's fundamentally because. Most people want to get rich. Most people want to get out of poverty in the, around the world. And what we've known historically is that that happens when you have access to lots of cheap and reliable energy. And that's mostly been fossil fuels. And you're not going to be able to convince Africans or Indians to say, look, we're going to be less rich. We're just going to leave people in poverty, but at least we won't emit CO2. That's just not going to happen. And so, again, you need to emphasize this is not about making 
these tiny, tiny changes in 100 years. It's about making these big, meaningful, incredibly cheap changes we talked about before, you know, make better uh, zoning uh, for, for hurricanes, that kind of thing. Those are simple and cheap, and we know how to do them. And then focus on innovation, because innovation is always what's fixed the problem. If, if you think back to the 1950s in Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles is incredibly polluted from mostly from cars uh air pollution is terrible lots of people complaining about this and, and lots of people had real problems and a lot of people died from it the solution was not to tell everyone in los angeles i'm sorry could you just you know not use your car and walk or run instead that would never work the solution was technological in 1974 a smart guy invented the catalytic converter it right. cost a couple hundred bucks you put it on the tailpipe and you fixed much of the problem Right. And so Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates recently was generous enough to uh, opine from his 60,000 square foot home on Lake Washington that, uh, yeah, it's going to be difficult to get people to say, oh, you know, buy a smaller home and drive a smaller car and this and that. So we should we shouldn't focus on that. And of course, he fancies himself an innovator, but he strikes me as a guy who's got a profile because of his wealth, who is mainly focused on the trivial, not the transformative that you're describing. Well, I, I would probably tend to disagree a little bit. You know, first of all, I actually think it's it's brave of him to stand up and say, you're not going to get people to downsize your houses. Yeah, I get he has an even bigger house. Uh, but, you know, it's it's good that that guys like him actually stand up and say, you're not going to succeed in telling people do with less. And he is actually investing a lot of his money in uh, in uh, fourth generation nuclear. Right. So the idea is and look, we don't know if it's going to work out. Uh, but he and many others are arguing if you could get this fourth generation nuclear, which would ba basically be small, modular uh, industrial production of nuclear power plants. So instead of these artworks that we right now put up that are incredibly expensive for each one of them, we'd just be mass producing lots of nuclear reactors. They'd be incredibly cheap, provide constant power, uh, so baseload power for everyone at very low cost. This, this is still a pipe dream. We don't know if it's going to work out. But I, I for one, I'm, I'm very happy that he's actually investing his own money in trying to make one of these things come true. Remember, it's not the only thing we should be investing in. We should be investing across the board in all these different technologies because it's very likely that his technology is not going to work out. But the point is, there are lots of these great ideas out there, and we really just need one of them to come true. And that's what's going to power the rest of humanity for the 21st century. He is Bjorn Lumberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Think Tank, author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn Lumberg, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Dan, Amy, great to talk to you guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's morning answer on AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Very good piece uh, from Matt Rosenberg over at wirepoints.com or .org. Takes you to the same website. Wirepoints are from Ted Dabrowski, Mark Lennon. They uh, break down all things Illinois policy related. And so they're breaking down what's happened as the Cook County criminal justice system has broken down over the last several years under the stewardship of Chief Judge Tim Evans. And what's happened in Cook County as a canary in the coal mine for what will happen statewide under Pritzker's purge law. More data, more real world 
examples to inform people as they make their choices in the next couple of weeks and over the next couple of weeks. Rosenberg points to three separate changes to Cook County that have degraded public safety. The bail reform that was moved by Tim Evans, poor electronic monitoring, which we've documented extensively on this show. Well, they get 48 hours off. Must be nice. And defining down crime. And the specific provisions of the Pritzker purge law that mirror what has been done in Cook County by the combination of Fox, Rom slash Lightfoot, and Evans becomes clear. In September of 2017, Chief Judge Tim Evans moved to reduce pretrial detention of low-income defendants who couldn't afford cash bail. He only wanted bail used when it was completely necessary, and even then in the least possible amount. So what's happened? Far far fewer defendants are showing up for court, and even fewer defendants are being detained before trial, which is exactly what prosecutors around the state are telling you is going to happen where they... uh, where they serve, because they understand what's happened in Cook County, and they understand that people respond to incentives. I mean, they sort of understand human nature and the criminal mentality, since we're mainly talking about repeat offenders. Right, and they know what's going on, and they know what's going to happen January 1st. So listen to this. Quarterly reports from Tim Evans's office show that by halfway through 2020, so less than three years, Mm -hmm. nearly 9,500 defendants released before trial have been charged with new offenses. So that's, that's, and you know, it's not one for one, but I mean, you're talking about thousands of crimes that were easily preventable. Thousands of crime victims who could have been prevented from being crime victims if you would have just held people pending trial for the charges they were facing. 2,841 of those offenses, well, I'm sorry, before I get there, that tw- by 2020, so September of 2017 when Evans moved this, to through mid-2020, 9,500 defendants released before trial have been charged with new offenses. By mid-2022, mm-hmm. the number almost doubled. Huh. Now we're up over 15,000. Wow. Of those 15,000 alleged crimes by pretrial defendants freed between late 2017, September of 2017, through mid-2022, 2,841 were classified as violent offenses. Another 1,594 were weapons offenses. 2,800 people. Wow. Evans' data also shows that by mid-2022... 20% of bond court defendants who were granted pretrial freedom from detention failed to appear at subsequent court dates. That rate was much worse than the 9% court appearance failure rate after bail reforms first quarter in late 2017. So you had a a no-show rate that doubled and moved up fairly quickly, but doubled over a short period of time once you minimize pretrial detention, which is exactly what the Safety Act would mandate for the entire state. 
I, I mean, I, we, we've come at this from so many different angles, and I, 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 I feel the exasperation of so many prosecutors who are saying the same things uh, uh, from the platforms upon which they stand. But I, I just I, – how can you abide political leaders who would do this? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment and yesterday Governor Pritzker you know because he keeps saying well you know it, it, this isn't you know this is a work in progress we're going to amend things this is his big amendment he finally came clean and told Craig Wall so let's explicitly put into the Safety Act with an amendment saying that we we're not going to let anybody out any of the violent criminals out on January one. He's saying it laughing, like, we're not going to do that. Well, you can't amend wait, wait, the bill. I, I don't understand. I don't understand. It, the, the Safety Act doesn't do that, he says. Oh, you're right. Bingo. So, so what do you mean, uh, amend it, number one? Number two is there's no appetite for amending it from your party's legislative leaders. Yeah, and there's no there. real appetite, and I you know, can't help but use the word appetite when J.B. Pritzker is yeah. at issue. Uh, there's no ap- real appetite from him either. He's just saying things now. It's ever evolving. It's, it's. Uh, there's some language cleanup that needs to be done. That's what he said for the last three weeks. Now, as we're closing in, and perhaps the walls are closing in on him. Now it's, hey, I want to make it explicit that no violent criminals will be released. Well, that's not what the law says. Right. You signed it. Right. He signed it. And somebody in the House and Senate's got to, you know, offer an amendment. Not him. But he signed it. You're right. And he didn't read it first. And he's got egg on his face. And now he's trying to laugh it off. Like, oh, no, they're just crazy, you know, right wing extremists who think that prisons are going to be emptied when we know it's Democratic state's attorneys that that know because they have to follow the letter of the law. So they know it's going to happen January 1st. It's just unbelievable. I mean, these delusional Democrats. It's like Christine Whitner, Whitmer saying, oh, I only had kids locked out of school for three months. I mean, like, they, they just make these lies and they th- people believe them. Some examples of what we're talking about, just anecdotal, the horror stories recounted in Matt Rosenberg's piece, which I tweeted out. You should read and share. Man released by Cook County Courts to electronic monitoring for a gun store burglary, then released from monitoring before being charged with fatally stabbing a drugstore clerk. Defended out on bond before trial for attempted murder, then charged with killing two at a video shoot party. Five-time felon out on bond for two weapons charges, then charged with killing two at a house party. Mm-hmm. Members of a carjacking crew, including charged suspects out on bond for repeated offenses, then charged in the killing of a retired firefighter in a Southside carjacking attempt. Serial carjacker free on bond, killing a young father in Chinatown in a failed carjacking attempt. 17-year-old out on bond before trial on felony gun charges, Allegedly carjacked an SUV and slammed into another vehicle, killing a 55-year-old woman. Another defendant out on bail on a felony gun charge arrested for murdering a man in a gang-related shooting. On and on and on and on. I, I just, I, I still just have a hard time processing. I know uh, we've helped to raise the profile on this. And so more people are aware of it. More people are talking about it. I, with all the discussion going on nationally, with the daily headlines emanating from Chicago and Cook County, 
with Cook County poised for the third year in a row to have north of 900 murders. Chicago, north of 600 murders, north of 3,000 shootings. How can you not be interested enough to know about this? And how can you not say that the people responsible for what has transpired thus far and the people responsible for attempting to scale what's happened in Cook County statewide are disqualified from holding public office. I don't know how you come to any other conclusion. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear how you can come to another conclusion. 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA. Turnkey.pro text line. Carl Marionette Park. Amy, thanks for taking my call again. Dan, I'm a 72-year-old man. I'm very sick. Uh, with COPD, um, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I spent 14 months in Vietnam, and if I was in good health, I sure as hell would be out knocking on doors, asking people to support Dan Bailey and any other Republican running for office. I am getting ready to do early voting today. I have a family member who's going to take me. I can die at any time, you know. I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to, to vote for Bailey, but um, Pritzker has no character, no morals, no values. He's as proven in his record as a, as a governor. When police officers are shot and killed, you don't hear a peep out of him. It's like he glorifies this. Police officers are mean. He has nothing to say about it. People on the expressway at the wrong place at the wrong time lose their life. He has nothing to say about it. How can somebody possibly support a, a, a demonic being like him? He's nothing but a thug. Thank you for taking my call, Dan. I, I love you and Amy, and thank you for everything you do for us to help us keep aware of what's going on. Well, Carl, nice we love you too, and, and thank you so much for your service, and we'll keep you in our prayers. Uh, take care thank of yourself, you Carl. Thanks yeah. for the call. appreciate it. He's going out and voting. Good for him. Jim in South Carolina. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I am elated to hear that you are emphasizing the role of the chief judge of Cook County in all this bail reform. I was one of the judges who sat in Central Bond Court in September of 2017. At that time, the chief judge transferred all six of us judges out of Central Bond Court because we refused to go along with his new bail policies. He replaced us with six new judges who he had interviewed and vetted and were in agreement with his new bail policies. That was so wrong, and I am so happy you are emphasizing and focusing on the chief judge's role in all of this. Thanks for the call. Thanks for that uh, backstory as well. I appreciate that insight. Thanks for the call, Jim. Hmm. Got out of Chicago, went to South Carolina. Not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Andy Hinsdale. You know, I noticed how, Dan, you've diligently avoided that. getting in in these engagements on social media anymore because they're so pointless. But you see these discussions among people in the city, and ultimately they come down when they can't go to any other reasoning. I've seen so many times where ultimately they come down and they say, well, women's rights are my my top priority in this election. And and, and the, the insanity of you're talking about women's rights versus the penultimate right of 
am I going to be, be able to be alive walking down the street in Chicago? Losing my life versus this phony argument about losing women's rights. And it just boggles my mind. And, that, and, there, and there's just so many of these discussions that that's how they wind up. And, and you, when you have a response like that, there's just no rational discussion with that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to see if, uh, uh, thanks for the call, Andy, a lot of uh, pro-choice suburban women uh, want to be as sensible as Maude Marin. I mentioned her earlier in the program when we were talking about the New York governor's race because it essentially mirrors the Illinois governor's race, particularly after the debate last night, which was primarily focused on crime. Maude Marin, who is a former Democrat candidate for Congress in New York State, she wrote an op-ed in the New York Post, Why This Pro-Choice Democrat Is Voting for Lee Zeldin for Governor. And she noted where, where the abortion law is in New York State, similar to where it is in Illinois, because like Illinois, they have a supermajority of Democrats controlling their state legislature. And so abortion on demand has been codified into New York State law, and it's not going to change. She writes, so every time Hochul, Kathy Hochul, talks about abortion, it just reminds me that she is not talking about the most pressing issue in our state, rising crime, or how many New Yorkers are leaving our state to move to places with lower taxes and safer streets, and so on and so forth. So I guess if you could get um, some people to be as level-headed, even though, you know, obviously I disagree with her on the life issue, but nonetheless, as level-headed as Miss Marin in New York State, then uh, maybe... Uh, she helps Lee Zeldin get over the top in New York, and maybe some so, some women similarly situated help Darren Bailey get over the top here. Frank Lamont. Hello. Hey, Frank. Yes. Hi. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. But I wanted to say, I think one of the main reasons we have a problem in Cook County is seventy-four point nine percent of the population votes Democratic. And they have been for years, which tells me the machine is alive and well, and and Cook County's driving the state. And until we start bringing some some uh, better better Republican candidates and start changing that, uh, our state is 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 uh, screwed. Thanks for the call, Frank. I mean, it's definitely headwinds. We know that. I mean, it's not like. I love I had this exchange with somebody on social media. I love how the socialists in this state pretend like they're not the man, like they're not in charge, like they don't have this huge structural advantage. Like uh, Illinois isn't the state that hasn't carried a Republican candidate for president since George H.W. Bush in 1988. Like Illinois isn't the state where Biden's approval rating is 25 percent higher than it than the national than his approval rating is nationally where illinois isn't the state with the plus seven generic ballot advantage for democrats all of these advantages they have for all sorts of reasons that have been built up over time but that's where we find ourselves going into this cycle and yet maybe maybe like in some other states where upsets are at least looming like new york state maybe there's enough sensible democrats left to Strike a blow for personal safety. Uh, it's not so much to ask for. Why are we begging to stay safe? We pay such high taxes. We're like, we're begging. Larry, we're just Bartlett. hoping every day when you walk down the street or somebody that you know and love takes a CTA that they're going to get home safely. 
Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. I just find it rather ironic that uh, for the last few years regarding COVID, um, Prisker's been telling us it's just we have to do this because it can save one life. It's worth everything we do. But he doesn't seem to care about saving one life for uh, his crime bill. Thanks for the call, Larry. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the debate last night, Pennsylvania Senate race between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman did not go well for John Fetterman and uh, the health challenges he faces as he's recovering from the stroke he had earlier in the year. It uh, didn't start particularly well. Here's his opening statement. Hi. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Oh my, oh. Uh, and that mm-hmm. is just cringeworthy the whole time. I, I felt so bad for him. I mean. Over before it started. But here's the thing. What's lost in all the discussion about his struggles, his health struggles, and that yeah. being the focus of the debate is this important flip-flop that he has done and what it says about the Dems and their positions on energy policy. Here's the question that was posed to Fetterman and his answer. I don't support fracking at all. I never have. But earlier this month, you told an interviewer, quote, I support fracking. I support the energy independence that we should have here in the United States. So, Mr. Fetterman, please explain your changing position. 60 seconds. I do support fracking. And I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. Okay. He supports fracking. Uh, Steve Moore, economist and author of Govzilla, how the relentless growth of government is devouring our economy and our freedom joins us now. Steve, uh, John Fetterman's 180 on fracking. What does that tell you about um, the Dems position on energy policy and uh, how that will impact November 8th? Well, good morning, uh, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Um, I could never understand how anybody in the entire state of Pennsylvania could be against uh, shale oil and gas because uh, shale oil and gas. I mean, it'd be like somebody from Nebraska saying I'm against corn or somebody from Idaho saying I'm against potatoes. So, uh, you know, that's a major, major job creator in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, That is uh, part of the uh, Marcellus shale that has provided so much energy. And by the way, if we were continuing to drill there, as we should be, we wouldn't have to uh, reduce our strategic petroleum reserve by one te- a teaspoonful, let alone, you know, the, the hundreds of millions of barrels that, uh, that Biden has taken out of that reserve. So, um, look, I think the Democrats are on the run right now all over the country, I think. And I don't look, I don't like making fun of sentiments, you know, issues. No. I mean, everyone no. has no health problems. Cares. And I, I think I think Republicans should stop with that and just Fetterman doesn't deserve to be elected because because he's wrong on all the issues, not because he had a stroke. Now, now look, it is a legitimate issue about whether he has the, you know, the capacity to serve. You know, we should have probably asked that question about Biden. But you're seeing this all over the uh, country now where the, the other thing that's happening in these governor's races, which is so interesting. I don't know if it's happened in Illinois, but all of these lockdown governors. Uh, these Democrats in states like Wisconsin and states like, uh, you know, um, Michigan, in Michigan. Yeah, I could go down the line. 
uh, Connecticut. For lockdowns, I wasn't in favor of lockdowns. Uh, these are the same people who shut down our schools, shut down our churches, shut down our businesses, restaurants, uh, and and they were mocking Republicans for being in favor of it. And the, the ultimate hypocrisy was in the, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, in the Florida gubernatorial debate, which was, I think, a couple of days ago, Charlie Crist, who was a Republican, then an independent, then a Democrat, then a Republican, he doesn't even know what he is, he started attacking you're not going to believe this. He was attacking Ron DeSantis for shutting down the Florida economy. Florida was like the first first state in the country to open up, and that's why everybody was going to Florida. And the great thing was, and then Ron DeSantis had a letter from right. Chris that he had signed attacking uh, DeSantis back a year and a half ago for opening up the economy. Now he's saying he was, he, you know, Chris was for opening it up all along. I mean, the Democrats are just you know, flip-flopping on every single issue. Well, I mean, listen to Governor Whitmer. This was her debate last night, talking about the schools being shut down. You know, Mrs. Dixon says that I kept (laughs) students out longer than any other state. That's just not true. I worked closely with my Republican and Democratic governors, and kids were out for three months. What what planet is she living on? I mean, the earliest they got back was some schools in December, and then everybody else in February or April of the following year. Yeah, exactly. No, this is really, it's amazing because Whitmer really was the lockdown queen. No, yep. And she was boasting about it. Oh, we're, you know, these, she was, I love this. I worked with the Republican governors. B.S. She didn't work with them. She was attacking the Republican governors who opened up their economies. You know, the governors in states like Tennessee and Texas and Florida and Iowa. And so it, it's just, it is, uh, it is pretty rich that now she's saying, oh, I worked to open up the economy. And here is the reason, Dan Nini, why they're backtracking. Number one, people are still angry about what these Democratic governors did to their local state economies, their businesses and their schools. But the other thing, and I'm sure you've talked about this many times in the last couple of days, this report that came out on the educational lack of any achievement by our kids uh, in the year 2020 and 21 is is breathifying. I mean, these politicians did severe child abuse to our children and they've been set back dramatically. Uh, a whole year of schooling was lost because of these morons, and they should pay a very high price uh, for what they did to our country and our kids. And um, the other thing that seems to be boomeranging on the Democrats is Biden's student loan forgiveness. Um, he can't remember if it was by executive order or by uh, congressional right. action, but regardless, um, it was interesting, I thought, this week when he compared student loan forgiveness to PPP loans, where he said essentially, <laughs> did he do that again? Yeah, he did. <laughs> essentially, right? The Republicans yeah. were fine with getting PPP loans, but they're not fine with college kids who suffered during COVID getting student loan forgiveness at the, as if the two are equivalent. Um, listen, uh, there's a difference. The PPP. Well, first of all, I always thought those PPP loans should always be loans. Actually, they weren't loans. They were grants that businesses didn't have to pay back. And I think the businesses should have been, if this is something that Laffer and I and others have been advocating for. Yes, we'll give short-term loans so businesses can get through this. But when you borrow money, you get money from the government, you should have to pay it back. And I, I know some, maybe some of the small businessmen and women listening to the show may not like that idea. But I, I believe that was the mistake we made. And so, But look, it's very simple. Why should somebody 
who graduated from college, and many of these people actually graduated with advanced degrees, you know, uh, master's degrees and PhDs. Many of them are earning $100,000, $150,000, dollars a year, and not, they're not paying back their student loans. It, it just doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't pass a laugh test. You kind of scratch your head and say, well, why shouldn't people pay back their student loans? Uh, and so uh, I think Biden, you know, he keeps saying things like, oh, we passed that through Congress. What? Oh. It, it, I, I worry about our country when we have a president who doesn't know what's going on. And so uh, the closing argument you think Republicans should make uh, over the next 13 days on matters uh, economic? Is that a trick question? No, no. I mean, what, what should, well, you, you, yeah, you got to use words. Course, so what, what should it sound like? Uh, look, that these people, if, if, especially if it's like for these congressional Senate races, I would say this is very simple. These Democrats have done severe damage to our country, and we will be spending years and decades to do undo the damage they did by spending and borrowing and printing $4.1 trillion, more money than we spent in World War II. And they need to be held accountable for that, the, the, the outrageous um, you know, crisis and everything to wait, and a terrible thing to waste. The reason you're paying more at the grocery store, the may, more, reason you're paying more at the gas pump, the reason you're paying $350 for airline tickets is because they've jacked up um, the inflation rate. The reason your 401k plan is down by $35,000 is because of what they've done to our economy. And, you know, this is the 30 year, I have a piece in my New York Post that was in yesterday morning. And I pointed out that it was 30 years ago, uh, just almost exactly 30 years ago, that remember when Jim Carvo, who, uh, who was running the Clinton campaign, had that famous sign, it's the economy stupid. Remember that one, Dan and Amy? Yeah. Well, you know, it's still the economy stupid. This isn't complicated. <laughs> you know, they've done severe damage, and they need to – it's like – I'll put it very simply. If you've got a coach that goes 0-16, mm -hmm. you fire the coach. And I'm not, by the way, Dan, I want to make this very clear to your listeners. I'm not telling people that Republicans are the salvation, that they're going to, like, you know, come in and do all these wonderful things, because they're not. I've been around Republicans a long time. What I'm saying is you can't give these Democrats another two or four or six years in office because of what they've done. It's time to fire the coach. Steve Moore, economist and author of Govzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. Steve, thanks as always. Okay, guys, have a great day. Take Thanks, care. you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Tickets are on sale now for Freedom Summit 2022. Get yours today at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, one of uh, social scientists Charles Murray's great works. Recently, a few years ago, coming apart, in which he describes how the wealthy in leftist enclaves think Chicago's North Shore don't preach what they practice. What do they practice? They practice uh, doing well in school, uh, earning a good education, being responsible financially and otherwise, getting married, raising a family. That's what they do and they find success and they uh, telescope success through future generations of their families. But what they preach in so many places, think Wilmette, Highland Park, Glencoe, 
Naperville, Hinsdale these days. What they preach is Marxism, cultural and even to some extent economic. And so now take that mentality and scale it to some of the most powerful business interests in the country and thus the globe. And you have this notion of what RealClearInvestigations.com is terming woke capital or politicized capitalism. Ben Weingarten joins us now. He's a deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations. RealClearInvestigations.com is the site. And they've got a, a new resource, a new report, Invisible Hand or Iron Fist, Real Clear Investigations' is Guide to Politicized Capitalism. Ben Weingarten joins us now to discuss that. Ben, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. So, I mean, we have, you know, uh, our listeners have an understanding of this. Generally speaking, you think of uh, Klaus Schwab's confabs with uh, all the global elites, uh, the World Economic Forum. But let's start with uh, one aspect of your report, the three key forces in woke capitalism. Um, they're individuals and individuals that organize into groups. And heading that list is the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, the Dickensian named Larry Fink. Um, the impact that Larry Fink has had on corporate culture and, to your phrase, woke capitalism. Yeah, well, and to your point, it'd be interesting to see Charles Murray's analysis of a figure like Larry Fink. And Larry Fink is really representative of, but also a uniquely powerful player in this drive, this awakening or wokening, however we want to term it, within the corporate world, because he sits atop the largest manager of assets in the world. And by sitting atop that company, BlackRock, he has disproportionate sway over every aspect of the global company, a uh, global economy. Uh, and that includes, by the way, sovereigns, that is government as well, because BlackRock manages government funds. Uh, so Fink himself has been a devout adherent to pushing ESG, environmental, social, and governance business principles. And practically what that means is pushing a green net zero so-called agenda, which often manifests itself in punishing traditional energy companies. On the social side, it means pushing diversity, equity, and inclusion both within companies and outside. And governance, you know, generally would mean more like good governance principles within a company, but in reality, it oftentimes itself manifests in kind of pushing for diversity within board composition and things like that. Uh, so, but BlackRock's disproportionate sway is manifold, and it's the same with the other major asset managers, the so-called big three, which also includes State Street and Vanguard. Collectively, these asset managers hold, on average, about 20% of the shares of basically every major company. And consequently, that gives them substantial voting power over those companies in terms of shareholder proposals that come up, which often push sort of woke themes, in terms, of course, their ability to talk to management, vote for board members, and influence management, vote for board members, and then down to simply saying, we're going to divest from a particular industry on behalf of our shareholders. So BlackRock has substantial sway there, as do these other major asset managers. They also, of course, their personnel populate some very high-level positions within the Biden administration, 
and push regulatory authorities, in particular with sort of the green policies that are coming out in some of the SEC's rules and regulations. So their influence and power is massive, and because they are invested in every single sector, and on behalf of everything from mom-and-pop investors through funds that you might hold uh, shares in to sovereigns, to governments, public pensions, and the like, they have massive disproportionate sway over the wokening of the global financial marketplace. And so when you see, I mean, do you sense that there may be any revolt afoot? I mean, this, these are one-offs at this point, but I know the state of Louisiana announced that they were divesting from BlackRock, their sovereign fund. Um, you have, um, and, and, and just because they have this sort of influence doesn't mean they win the policy debates. Uh, I think of Michael Bloomberg's push for, uh, for stringent gun control and where the country has gone almost 180 degrees from where Michael Bloomberg would like it to go. So it, it's not, to, they're influential, but not determinative. And I wonder if based on performance, particularly in the financial sector, uh, CalPERS going woke and seeing sub uh, sub median returns and the, and and like the state of Louisiana example I gave, you're starting to see some pushback as people get a better appreciation of the implications of turning their sovereignty over to the Larry Finks and Michael Bloomberg's of the world. There's definitely been a pushback in the way of just exposés showing that actually the returns on these funds are not so strong as have been held in you know, a booming uh, stock market and debt markets as well. But beyond that, to your point, states have started to step up and essentially say, we want to take politics out of our investing. When we're investing public funds on behalf of uh, pensioners, our job is to maximize their returns. And consequently, we can't put them into investment vehicles that prioritize anything but those returns. So to your point, there have been a number of states now that have pulled out collectively billions of dollars that had been managed by BlackRock. In addition to that, there's also there's now a probe that's being undertaken by, I believe, around 19 states led by their attorneys general into essentially the collusion and the coordination of massive financial services companies, including the BlackRocks of the world, with U.N. bodies and regulatory bodies to push a green anti-traditional energy agenda. So there's actually a probe going on now led by the states into potentially collusive activity, which obviously manifests itself in discriminating against energy companies that are the lifeblood, really, of the American economy and clearly a, a key growth driver, uh, certainly prior to the Biden administration. So there is that pushback. And then I think you see anecdotal examples like, for example, with Florida and Governor DeSantis. The pushback against Disney with respect to its opposition uh, to the legislation put forth there, uh, barring the, the teaching of radical gender ideology in schools. Um, essentially, the Governor DeSantis showing that you can threaten to pull back these benefits that have been conferred on companies, government-granted benefits, to the extent they take positions on issues that are totally outside the wheelhouse of their business. So I think... That shows you probably directionally where we're going. And then should there be a Republican in Congress, there's already been substantial reporting out there to suggest that there's going to be a pushback against ESG in a variety of ways, including probing oversight and perhaps more with respect to the SEC's push for green climate disclosure. So there is a burgeoning pushback here going on largely at the state levels at this point. 
uh, but it grows. And then you do see, to some extent, a small coterie of companies pushing back, saying we're neutral on these issues. We're not going to take stands on, on positions, issues that are totally outside of our bottom line and top line decisions. But it's a very small marketplace relative to the other side, which is essentially all of the major corporations in America who take basically the same positions on a whole host of social and cultural issues that have nothing to do with their business models. Well, this is going to be important then that Kevin McCarthy keep his word if he's the next Speaker of the House and uh, and Republicans in the Senate, if they gain control of the Senate, uh, act in a similar fashion to decouple from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, from the Business Roundtable, as McCarthy has intimated. It seems like there is a growing recognition among center-right types, free market types, that just because it says Chamber of Commerce, just because it says Business Roundtable, doesn't mean that these are pro-free uh, market capitalism enterprises. Yeah, and you know, there's a distinction between being pro-business and being pro-capitalism. And I think there's also a growing recognition, and we argue this in our report, that essentially uh, the corporate marketplace, the, the business world, has become a way to execute an end run around the political system, imposing these views on the American public. And that, that's a new, a new development in American capitalism, and one that I think whatever side you're on, is worth noticing and may be troubling to many Americans who might be supporting causes totally unwittingly based upon what they do in the marketplace, where they shop, where they eat, et cetera. Yeah, so, so sort of like the farming out of government functions uh, to, for example, big tech to do the censoring that the federal government can't do of unpopular views, for example. Yeah, that, that that's right. And, you know, obviously to the extent there's and there's a push and pull here, but to the extent corporations are effectively doing the bidding of the bureaucracy itself, that obviously raises all manner of legal questions. And I think you're going to see a continued push in that direction, both at the state level and perhaps at the federal level as well, to the extent you have a Republican House and or Senate after 2022. It's the age old tension between true uh, entrepreneurs and rent seekers, no matter how big and powerful you are. You've you're you know, these big, powerful interests have allied themselves with government in sort of a combine uh, and they get they're They're able to use the government as a sealed or a, sh- a sword. Uh, and, and the the true entrepreneurs that are looking to build the best mousetrap don't have those advantages. It's absolutely right. It's a story as old as capitalism itself. The entrepreneurial values that a company needs to develop into a big and powerful company, they then oftentimes dispense with and look to use the government to protect them. We profile, to some extent, Michael Bloomberg in here, and it's really remarkable. As a case study, Michael Bloomberg's uh, Bloomberg Financial Analytics hardware uh, will likely be a major beneficiary of this push to impose compliance standards where every company has to put out what their greenhouse gas emissions are every single year. Bloomberg will be the likely premier purveyor of that data where you've posted it. And of course, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg himself, is pushing for those climate disclosures. So right there you see the inherent conflicts in this. And it calls into question whether or not this is all about businesses who really want to prove themselves to be virtuous versus actually that they see that there's something they can capitalize on here by going woke to actually avoid going broke. 
Yeah, this is a, a great report. Uh, ben Weingarten is the deputy editor at RealClearInvestigations.com. The report, Invisible Hand or Iron Fist, and that really is the question, Real Clear Investigations' guide to politicize capitalism. A uh, lot more discussion of this will need to be had to hold Republicans' feet to the fire if they do indeed secure the Congress on November 8th. Ben Weingarten, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.